This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to have a conversation about having babies over 35. I know it is a big concern for a lot of us. And I think this conversation is going to soothe and calm your minds. So to have this conversation, I have third time podcast guest, Dr. Nicole Rankins. Let me tell you a little bit about her. So Dr. Nicole is a Duke University trained, board certified, practicing OBGYN and mom of two who empowers first time parents to have beautiful birth experiences that they deserve. Over her 20-year career, she's helped more than 1,500 babies into the world. It is a proud HBCU grad, Spelman College and North Carolina A&T State University. And she also has an amazing popular podcast called All About Pregnancy and Birth. And I have to say, I had the honor of being a guest on that podcast. Go take a listen. She's really wonderful. So Nicole and I talk about the risks and the benefits of having babies over 35. We talk about fertility. We talk about how care may be different or not necessarily different over 35 and how managed your birth may need to be or not need to be. And she dispels some huge myths. Now, my biggest takeaway from this conversation was that a lot of times it takes about 15 years for data to make its way into certain hospital settings. And so what she was saying is it's not 35 where we see this dramatic drop and that things really change. It's actually 40. So 40 is the new 35. So that may feel a little bit more grounded for those that are in that 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 range and thinking about having babies. So I think you're going to get so much out of this conversation. Now, before we get to that, I always like to give just a little update about what's happening at Prenatal Yoga Center. So we've added to our on-demand library. So go check that out because I know that my schedule may not be your schedule. And I even know my time zone is likely not your time zone so that our classes and workshops may not work for you. So that's why we have them on demand. Now we also have online classes every day and in-person classes at Prenatal Yoga Center in New York City six days a week. So we've got many options for you to join the community online or in person. Now, the biggest change that's been happening recently is we've changed our teacher training. So we were planning on doing two in-person, two online. But the feedback I got was that people, because it's a very specialized training, they can't always come to New York to take it. And people really clamor to take this training. I'm so, so proud of it. And 
people wanted to do it online because we have people from different countries, different time zones. So we took the early fall, the September, October, and we're putting it online and we already have enrollment. It went very quickly. Once I made that decision, we got applications right away. So if you want to do our teacher training and you can't come to New York, check it out. We've online September, October, late October, into December and then January, February, and then we'll be back in person March, April. And of course, we have our postnatal teacher training online once a year. So that's all the good stuff happening at PYC. And then the last thing I'm going to say before we get to my conversation with Nicole is always just a big thank you. Thanks for being part of the community. Thanks for listening. All right, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole Rankins. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Nicole. How are you? I am so good. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I realize I think this is your third podcast with yoga birth babies. I figure if I like a guest, I'm just going to keep inviting them back. So I like what you think. I love it. Thank you. All right. So let's jump in. So I, of course, had the opportunity to speak with you twice already, and I'll make sure I have the, you know, the links in our, in our show notes, but would you share a little bit about yourself and what led you to becoming an OBGYN? Yeah. So, um, Dr. Nicole Rankins, I've been an OBGYN. I cannot believe this. I've been in practice for 20 years. Wow. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And I've helped. I always say I've had the privilege of helping over a thousand babies, but it's probably closer to 1500, honestly. And I became an OBGYN because in medical school, I knew I wanted to do procedures. I wanted to do something with my hands. I knew that I wanted to have women primarily as patients. And I thought about general surgery versus OBGYN. And in general surgery, I really hated having male patients. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I could, I know I could have done something something like a breast surgery specialization or something like that, but that was not, uh, not my calling. So I decided to do OBGYN and I absolutely love it. It's exactly where I'm supposed to be. And yeah, you are so knowledgeable and the times I've had to chat with you, you're just so passionate about supporting your community. So you've chose right, or it chose you, I guess, in a way. Yes, absolutely. I listened to those nudges and it has led me down the right path. Great. So I came up with this topic that we're going to talk about today because I listened to your podcast and you did a podcast about having babies over 35, which Mm -hmm. those that listen to my podcast know I did. I had my babies over 35 and I have a lot of students in New York city, especially that fall into that category and it stresses people out. So I want to dive into that, but I guess Mm -hmm. you don't mind me asking, when did you have your kids? Yeah. So my first was 33 and the second was 35. Okay. Did you have, if I can pry a little bit, how did you you feel when you hit 35? Were you anxious about it or it didn't really phase you? I thought it was stupid. Like I felt the same. Like I, why is 35 all of a sudden like, um, the, in the code for it, like the medical code for insurance is, 
used to be geriatric pregnancy. Is that the worst? Yes. And it's like, this is ridiculous. So no, I didn't. I actually felt less anxious during my second pregnancy than I did during my first. Yeah. I had my first at 37 and my second at 40. And I, I was anxious. Like Mm. I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to take forever. We got pregnant on our first try and my okay. husband's like, we need to name this child. I told you so. <laughs> because I was freaking out. I was like, right. oh my God. Right, right. Yeah. And, and it didn't, but I know I was, I was very fortunate. So let's talk a little bit about this. So I did some research and I found mm-hmm. a study that showed there's been an increase in the number of first babies born to people in the U.S. who are 35 or older. So from, and this is a bit ago, but from 2000, it went up 7.4%. And then in 2014, it went up 9.1%. And then in 2018, it went up 10.8%. So clearly we see a rise of people having babies later. What do you think is driving the age of first-time parents up? Yeah, I think it tracks along with people getting more education, wanting to be more settled before they have children and people just feeling like they they can take their time. They don't have to rush in order to start a family. Our societal norms make it so that it's okay to have children later. Now, to some degree, some of that's been taken to a little bit of the extreme. Like when people see celebrities having babies at like 50 and they think, oh, I can just wait, you know, forever and get pregnant. And that is not true. Uh-huh. But I think it just in general attracts us more education and, and people just waiting and, and feeling like they're more stable before they have children. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. I am almost 50 and my energy level right now, I would not be able to handle a newborn with what... Listen, listen, (laughs) if you, if you heard a guttural scream in your vicinity and like, where is that coming from? It would be me if I were right now. (laughs) Because I love my children, but at almost 49, like I, there's no way I could start over. All right. So you and I are very close because yeah, I'm 49 right now. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm actually looking more about like, hot flash land than yeah. I am about newborn land. <laughs> exactly. It's a very different conversation, <laughs> but yeah, I feel, I feel you're there. So yeah. what's interesting is the students that come to me that are over 35, they're freaking out because they've been labeled high risk. So can we take a moment and talk about just because someone hits 35, are they considered high risk or is it, is there something more to it? And can they still have healthy, well, I'm going to say, yes, I think they can have healthy babies because you and I both did. So what are your thoughts on that? The most likely outcome actually is an uncomplicated pregnancy and a healthy baby. So I, I want people to really hear that, that that's not actually, you know, it's not just possible, it's actually most likely. So that 35 cutoff number came from the fact that that's, that's the, the age at where the risk of, having a baby that has Down syndrome matches about the risk of having a miscarriage with amniocentesis. And this is actually older data. So that was like decided where we're at that point where the risk of having Down syndrome, and it's still only about one in 200, even at that that point, uh, if I recall correctly. And because those two numbers match, it's like, oh, well, we should start offering people genetic testing in order, because now they're those risks are similar. It's, I know it probably makes no sense, but that is honestly where that 35 number came from. Oh, that's interesting. So Mm -hmm. 
When someone's considering having a baby older than 35, are there Mm -hmm. certain fertility issues that they should be thinking about? Yes. So it is true that our fertility does decline as we age. So I do want to be very clear about that because sometimes people think, like I said, they see celebrities and people having baby at older ages and they think that, oh, I can just wait, but it actually does decline. It starts to take a more precipitous decline, especially after 40. Okay. But between 35 and as we get older, it starts to decline for sure. So I recommend that anybody over 35 who's trying to get pregnant, if you're not pregnant after six months, then you should see uh, your OBGYN or fertility specialist. And often people think that that means, oh my goodness, I have to do IVF. And that's not what it is. Actually, you just need to see someone so that you can understand your options. Mm-hmm. And there are some blood tests. There's one called uh, anti-malarian hormone, something that can help, help give you a sense of your ovarian reserve, how much um, ov- uh, eggs you have left. So this is really just to understand your options, know what is available to you, know what your situation is. You don't have to go straight to doing anything, but it's much, 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 much better to know what your options are. So I say 35, if, you know, after six months, between 35 and 40, you're not pregnant or sooner if you want to, you can go see a fertility specialist whenever you want. And after 40, yeah, after 43 months. So I had a friend that was having that issue and she had, I didn't even hear this. Of course, we probably old news too. She needed to have one of her fallopian tubes cleared out. Is that a thing? Am I making that up wrong? No, (laughs) no, you're not. No. So when people do, it's, it's, they found that if people have, uh, are going to do IVF, that even with in vitro fertilization where the embryo is implanted directly into the uterus, the success rates are actually lower if one of the tubes is blocked, even though we're bypassing the tube. But uh, so even if if you're going to do IVF, there's some data that removing the fallopian tubes that look damaged can help improve outcomes. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just going to throw out there that I, and not everyone may subscribe to this idea, but I did acupuncture, um, for my second, after I had a miscarriage, and then I did some Chinese herbs, although I'm still convinced she just went to Central Park and put some dirt in a bag and I drank it because it was just awful. But <laughs> I mean, it was literally, it tasted like dirt. I mean, it looked like dirt, but it, it helped. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's what it is. I really do believe in Eastern medicine and, and I got pregnant right after that tribe, but there are, you know, no, so there, there are other true. options. Yeah, there, yeah. There's data that shows that acupuncture um, helps with fertility. As a matter of fact, fertility clinics that take a more holistic approach will often refer you to do acupuncture during your cycles. So that's not made up. It actually does help. I love, I love hearing that. So what are some of the risks factors about having a baby after 35? So it's the same risk that happened for anybody who's pregnant except they're higher. So there's a higher risk of preeclampsia compared to if you're under 35. There's a higher risk of preterm labor. Uh, There's a higher risk of stillbirth potentially. The stillbirth risk is is especially higher when you're 40 or older. Um, There's a higher risk of, what am I blanking on? I don't know. I think that's it. Those are the big things. Preterm labor, preeclampsia, stillbirth. Uh, still the risk of all of those is going to be 
10% or less. So it's not like it's, it's very high, but we have to watch things and be careful. But most people, again, if you start your pregnancy in a healthy place, you will probably have a healthy pregnancy and birth regardless of your age. So can we dig a little bit more into those percentages? And you may not have this in front of you, so I'm happy to do some research, but I know that here, if you're pregnant and you hear that, you're like, oh gosh, I don't want anything that's going to increase my risk. So whatever told me I will do, where are we looking at higher risk? There is an increased risk of chromosome uh, problems when you're, especially for trisomy 21 or down syndrome as you get older. So when we look at some of the specific numbers and we look at data from live births, <laughs> the risk at when you're 35 of having trisomy 21 or, or, or uh, excuse me, the risk of um, at 35 of having any chromosome abnormality is one in 204. When you're 36, it goes up to one in 167. When you're 40, it jumps, a, there's a big jump, one in 63. Oh, so that is a big it, jump. It, but still, that's still less than uh, 2%. So it sounds high, but still overwhelmingly not likely. So that's for chromosome abnormalities. And then when we look at things like um, hypertension, that's the most common thing that's going to happen. And it's... Uh, if, if the odds of being diagnosed with chronic hypertension are about two times as higher in women who are greater than uh, over 35 years of age than in women who are 30 to 34, uh, and it's even higher when you're over 45, it can be about four times as high about being diagnosed with hypertension during pregnancy. So for those that don't know about preeclampsia and hypertension, mm -hmm. can you describe th what would happen if someone has that and how they would work with that? Yeah. So preeclampsia is a condition where you develop high blood pressure in pregnancy. And we've actually, it's kind of a spectrum actually, where we call it now hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And you have high blood pressure. That's one of the criteria. And then you may or may not have other end organ manifestations. And by that, I mean, typically kidney will be the first thing. So you'll have protein in your urine because your kidneys are producing extra protein and that's spilling out into your urine. In severe cases, it can um, affect your liver. It can be really severe, but it's just high blood pressure and it's affecting other organs in your body. Sometimes it can affect your ability for your blood to clot. And actually preeclampsia is one of the reasons that prenatal care was, was uh, made or uh, designed in order to monitor blood pressure and see if it develops because it can really develop at any point in time in pregnancy. So when we look at the general population, everyone, the risk of preeclampsia is roughly about 5%, but that increases to 10% for women who are over 40. And then if someone has preeclampsia, how do you treat that? The treatment for preeclampsia is birth. So yeah. we're going to, yes. <laughs> so if it's if it falls into the severe range, then it'll be delivery no later than 34 weeks. If it is not severe, it will be either when it, either 37 weeks or when it is diagnosed. So if it's diagnosed at 38 weeks, then we've been induced then. But between that 34 and 37 range, we try to get folks to 37 weeks if we can. 
my very, very first doula client, which is, wow, like 18 years ago, I think, <laughs> she had preeclampsia and she was induced. And so that's why it's very much in my head, that one thing. Oh, gotcha, yeah. And gotcha. she was remarkable by <laughs> that whole pregnancy. <laughs> that whole, she actually, total side note, she insisted on still having an unmedicated delivery with a midwife wow. in the hospital okay. with, with induction. And the midwife okay. pulled me over after. She's like, that is rare. You will not it, see that often. Yeah, so that, it's is, amazing. that is a tough thing to do. Absolutely. Um, there's also increased yeah. risk of diabetes. Uh, when you look at actually the data now is trying to reframe it. And most data is actually presented is comparing women 40 and older mm-hmm. because there's such a recognition that between 35 and 30 and 40 is not a big increased risk. Unfortunately, our medical system sometimes has a hard time catching up with the most current information and the way that we look at practice. But when you look at ACOG, when you look at UpToDate, which is a big like online kind of source of credible medical information, they often report the risk for 40 and older just because the risk between 35 and 40 is not that great. So when we look at diabetes, um, it rises, the risk of diabetes rises to as high as 12% in women over 40. And that's compared to four to 5% for women under, under 40. You just said something huge that I want listeners to hear, especially those that are around 35, that it's almost like 40 is the new 35. So taking, taking that heat off of themselves as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about how care is managed and how people are seen as 35 and high risk. But if ACOG is saying this and some of the data supporting that, Mm -hmm. that can really help those that are pregnant talk to their care providers saying, Hey, I know my risks are higher, but am I high risk? And here's the data. Oh, I'm liking this. I'm liking this a lot. Yes. And the, 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 the the thing that I want people to understand though, is that there's some studies that show it can take 15 years for clinical practice to change. And that's across all specialties. So some people just still have in their head that 35 is a problem or 36 has a much higher increased risk of problems when it actually doesn't. So you may to some degree have to tell yourself that I am healthy, mm-hmm. things are going well, the baby's growing well, my blood pressure is great. So I am going to have most likely a healthy baby and healthy outcome. This is really exciting to me because I have students that are saying, I'm 35, I'm high risk. My doctor wants to induce me at 39 weeks because I'm high risk. And I'm like, what other factors are there? Well, I'm 35. So, oh, I'm I'm like, I want to get these studies and be like, here, go, go talk to your care provider. All right, well, let's take a break. But when we come back, let's talk about some suggestions to help one's body be prepared for trying to conceive if they are over 35. All right, we'll be right back. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. All right. We are back. So maybe I should focus this question more on if you're older than 35 and heading towards 40, (laughs) what are some of your suggestions for somebody helping to prime and prepare their body for trying to conceive? 
Same thing that is recommended for everyone. So try to be in the most optimal health that you can. So try to optimize your weight. If you know that you need to lose weight, even if you can lose 10% of your body weight, that's going to help improve your outcomes. Try to work on moving your body more. Uh, it doesn't have to be like strenuous exercise or you know crazy. Could be yoga. Like that. Yeah, it can absolutely be <laughs> yoga, but try to work on moving your body more. This can be a great time to try to incorporate new things into your life to help you be healthier overall. Uh, and then also, of course, you know, watch your diet, look for things that are opportunities where you can make healthier food choices. Healthier food choices do not mean that things suddenly have to be disgusting or you have to eat vegetables all the time, or you suddenly have to give up all of the sweets or anything like that. It just means eating a more balanced uh, diet. Uh, seek out a nutritionist if you feel like that will help you in terms of making sure, helping you make uh, healthier choices for yourself. What if someone has a pretty unusual cycle? Do you think just tracking their cycle is going to help or oh, that you see a specialist? Yeah, yeah, 100%. If you have unusual cycles, then it's hard to predict when you are ovulating. And so then it's hard to predict when to have sex, despite what it feels like, you know, like that people get pregnant all the time, you know, young people, this, that, and the other, it actually is only two or three days out of your cycle, out of your, out of the month that you can get pregnant. It's really not that common. So if you, if you don't know when your cycles are, it can be hard to time pregnancy. Correct. So yeah, definitely track your cycles. I used a book called, I think it was called Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And then there was another one, like three months to make a baby. I think that was the name, three month ah, plan. Um, right. I don't remember totally, but listeners, those might be some good books to look at. All right. So yeah. let's now talk about circling back to 35, 40s and new 35. How mm-hmm. does prenatal care for a parent over 35 or maybe closer to 40 differ from someone younger than that age? Sure. So we may recommend low-dose aspirin in order to help prevent preeclampsia. Low-dose aspirin is one of the things that it's the only thing really that has been shown to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. And if you're 35 or older and you have at least one other risk factors, and those risk factors may be being black, being obese, having uh, diabetes, having hypertension, having someone in your family who had uh, preeclampsia, it's actually pretty easy to meet one of the other risk factors. Then we do recommend a low-dose daily aspirin that will actually help reduce the risk of preeclampsia. So that's one way. Okay. Um, Towards the end of pregnancy, we may recommend uh, testing where you, what's called antenatal testing, where, and that's really more so for 40 and over, although some people will do it for 35. And this is to try to reduce the risk of stillbirth. This is when you come in once or twice a week, you get put on the monitor, look at the baby's heart rate, make sure the baby's heart rate is okay. So antenatal testing is one. Also for 40 and over, ACOG recommends uh, doing an ultrasound to assess growth in the third trimester, just Mm -hmm. to estimate the size of the baby. We have to, there has to be some caveats to that because sometimes uh, estimates of if the baby's appearing big on ultrasound can be rather inaccurate, but it's uh, definitely can help to make sure that the baby's not too small. So an ultrasound in the third trimester to assess the baby's growth is going to be recommended. 
And then for uh, induction, it's really for women 40 and older, recommend induction between 39 weeks and 40 weeks. And that's just to reduce the risk of stillbirth, both because the risk of stillbirth is higher for women over 40, but also you don't have as much of an opportunity to get pregnant again. So we really pretty, that's a pretty strong, solid recommendation to do induction at 30, anytime 39 weeks before 40 weeks. So between that 39th and 40th week. No, that's interesting. I really appreciate that. But now also the ultrasounds, I'm again, taking a little sidestep here. Mm-hmm. How many ultrasounds is one typically getting? Yeah, typically you're going to get one in the first trimester. That's going to be the best one to make sure we know exactly how far along you are. Ultrasound is most accurate in determining that. And then you'll have one in the second trimester in order to do what's called the anatomy scan, where we look at all of the structures, make sure all of that is okay. That's around 18 to 20 weeks. And then after that, there actually is, if everything is going well, there actually isn't an indication to do any additional ultrasounds. Now, doctors these days, some will do more ultrasounds, uh, but there really aren't any strong indications to do so unless there is... um, a problem. We suspect the baby's small or large based on our measurements or things like that. Uh, but no, there, there's not a reason to do any ultrasounds beyond the 20 week ultrasound typically. So why, why are they, why do you think some care providers are doing that? Some people do it routinely to check the baby's growth, even though it's not evidence-based. Um, <laughs> it, it, do you have anything um, you want to say about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> at, at, some people do it because they may get reimbursed for it in their office. I hate to say that. Um, but that's the reality. Um, some people, that's just the way that they, they've been taught or learned how to practice and they continue those things. So, um, in the, there, there is no role for like routine third trimester ultrasound. Oh. Now, now we can do maybe a quick ultrasound just to make sure the baby's head is head down. Head is down. That's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not a full, a full formal ultrasound. That's just like a quick two second look, okay, head is down, head is not down. And then, uh, make decisions from there. Yeah. I remember even as a doula, when I would go into the hospitals with people, they would do quick, like ultrasound, just making sure head is down, know what we're dealing with. Not like a full, full scan. Now what about, so you mentioned induction at a certain Mm -hmm. point, but what, what else might differ for the management of labor? Like, again, I had a student saying that they talked about intermittent monitoring, but I think that student was more than 35, might've been like 36, 37, but not like outrageous, not like, you know, 45. And not that that's outrageous listeners. It's just outside of the, (laughs) outside of the 35 to 40, but they were saying they were asking about intermittent monitoring and the care provider said, no, they're high risk because of their age. They're going to have full-time external fetal monitoring. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that that's not based on, on evidence. Um, ACOG doesn't, um, support that you have to do anything different about the management of labor in the absence of other issues. So as long as there's, you know, if there's no high blood pressure, there's no diabetes, those sorts of condi- things or growth concerns about the baby's growth, then um, we, we don't have to do continuous monitoring. Now in the setting of induction, we're probably using medications that we do need to use right. continuous monitoring. So yes. like Pitocin, we do need to continue 
uh, do continuous monitoring. But if you come into labor, spontaneous labor, and otherwise there are no issues, that is not based on being 35 alone is not necessary. Well, that is interesting. Again, you're giving me so much stuff. I can't wait to get into <laughs> class tomorrow and be like, listen to what I have learned. All yes. right, so let's, you mentioned <laughs> induction. So let's jump into that. What's the correlation between age and induction and cesarean births? So most likely induction, regardless of age, is going to be successful. So that's across most ages. But yes, there may be a slightly decreased risk of induction, uh, successful induction as people get older. Now, some of that is hard to tease out because sometimes people may be um, a little more what's the word, like like quicker to go to C-section when someone is over 35 because they're, you know, things are more con- concerning. So the doctor or the client or the, the pregnant person? The, actually, I've seen both, honestly. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen both where sometimes people are like, why, this is just my one baby. I, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not messing through. around. I'm getting that yeah, baby I don't, Yeah, exactly. I don't want to go through a four day induction or <laughs> so, so some people, yeah. So some, some people, it, it really can be from both sides. When we look at the, um, one of the biggest studies, the ARRIVE trial that looked at, uh, induction for, and it broke it out by age categories. It did not find that induction success was success, uh, significantly lower in people as they got older, maybe just a tiny bit lower so that, that we should treat people as normal, give people the same opportunities and do C-sections for the standard indications. Do you want to, again, not going too crazy, but just give a quick explanation of the ARRIVE trial? Uh, yeah. So the ARRIVE trial was a study. It's a randomized trial that looked at induction versus expected management for people who are, were between 39 weeks and 39 weeks and six days. And it found a slightly lower rate of cesarean birth in people who were induced. And this is counterintuitive to all of the data that we had before, but this was the strongest type of data, a randomized controlled trial. So in those who were induced, the C-section rate was about 19%. And those who were not induced, the C-section rate was 22%. So not a huge difference, but a difference. Now, you're, when you looked at that trial, do you see how induction is managed in most hospitals mirroring that to what they were in the trial? Say, look, you have brought up one of the big concerns about this. (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) And that the rates for C-section were very low in both groups. And so lower than what is the background rate uh, in most places, which is typically closer to 30%. So New York right now is around 32. Okay. So it brought up some concerns that in this study that people were giving a lot more time for induction than they normally or typically do. Uh, and same thing for expected management. Like they were both, both sides were giving more time for a vaginal birth than typically happens. So it's very hard to know whether they didn't publish all of the strict protocols for the study is to know uh, if your doctor is, is following 
uh, this giving you enough time for labor induction to be effective. So let's also talk about, and this is really more just uh, personal perspective. What do you think are some of the benefits of having babies older? Oh, that's a good question. You probably are more likely to have financial stability. So you're able to afford some of the things or maybe nicer things than if you were younger and didn't have as much financial stability. So that's definitely one. I think when you're older, you certainly, most of us have a bit more maturity and we're able to approach life and the way that we do things from a more mature and experienced uh, perspective. Um, and I, you know, you, I think you just feel a bit more settled. So uh-huh. when you're, when you're older, you just, you're, you're not, you, you've, you're closer to like figuring out who you are, what you want to do, those sort of things. And you just feel a bit more settled in your life. And that helps you in the, when you, that brings that perspective to being a parent. I think so. I'm going to say from my perspective, and I was recently interviewed because I was an older parent about why I chose. And I'll be totally honest. It wasn't necessarily my first choice to have kids older. It was my second marriage. And that's when things worked out that way. But I do agree. There is something about feeling a little bit more settled and grounded and a little bit more understanding of like, this is who I am. And and not as apologetic for that, like still, of course, learning and growing and evolving, but I felt a little more grounded. I look at who I was in my early twenties. Again, this is not to say for everybody, but for me, early twenties, mid twenties, I don't think I would have been a great parent. Cause I think I just was a little too, sow in the wild oats, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't, for me personally, I didn't get married until I was 32. So uh, for me, I wasn't, you know, on the table to have children before then. I wanted to wait until I was married. So um, yeah, I just I fell into being an older mom. Yay for older moms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, what is one final tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? We'll be right back. So let's think you are a parent of two. You're an OBJYN. You have your own podcast all about birth and pregnancy. So (laughs) where, where are you choosing from? What's your tip? I'm going to say in relation to this topic, there is never a perfect time Mm. to have children. I do think sometimes as people get older, they're like, well, let me just wait a couple more months until this thing about the job is settled or you know, we move or there will never be a perfect time to have children. So when you're ready, just go for it (laughs) and know that the most likely thing that's going to happen is that you will be healthy. Your baby will be healthy. Educate yourself for any of those possible curveballs, but most likely you'll be fine. Oh, that is really, that's great. I love it. It's like, don't rush, but at the same time, don't hold out for the perfect time. I really appreciate that. Where can people find all your work? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins. That's my favorite social media platform. My website is drnicolerankins.com. And I have lots of free stuff there, like labor, pain guides, pre, uh, understanding prenatal tests, all of that stuff, things that you can download. And then my favorite place where you can find me is my podcast, which is called All About Pregnancy and Birth. 
It is great. So, of course, I'm glad people are listening to Yoga Birth Babies, but really, listen to Dr. Rankin's podcast. She's got great stuff. I listen to it on a regular basis, especially if I'm feeling just a little bit overwhelmed with a lot of the birth stuff coming at me and I still want to learn, but I want to be focused. I listen to your podcast for like a grounding. I do. I really do. I really enjoy it. And you have a great radio voice. So (laughs) you know, people tell me that I have never gotten used to people saying that I'm like me, but thank you. I'm just going to now say thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So if you ever decide you want to ditch obstetrics, you can be a radio host. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, it's, but as always, it is such a joy to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.